Okay, church. Can we grab you? Grab you? Hey, Laura. Can you grab the people from the kitchen? <laughs> Visiting hours are over. <laughs> I phoned Laurel this morning to print something for me because my printer wasn't working. And she's like, oh, I can't help you. I'm in black. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> Did she go, like, got a tournament? You got to put the availability for reference. And we forgot to. The same thing I did last week. So got to block out for the early uh, morning. So you have to wrap a game? Two. Oh, and then she can't, of course, uh, she, she can't, she can't she drive somewhere. Well, he can't, he can't drive. <laughs> no. You need a belt. You need a belt. And that was the lady Are you serious? I'm not listening to you. I told them and now they're all at the coffee station. <laughs> all right. Well, for those of us who are in here, let's uh, let's stand and read John chapter 17. And I told you verse 6, but we'll actually start at verse 13 today. John 17, verse 13. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in them themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am out of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am out of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified. Let's pray. Lord, we are always astounded by how so many few verses have so much to say to us. And as we grow in our faith and we, we learn more and more from you on a, on a yearly basis, we see that your scriptures are very much like a, a, an onion where there's just different layers to what you're trying to say and communicate. And as we grow, we see deeper and deeper levels of, of, of teaching that you have for us. I pray no matter where we're at today as a church, whether we're kind of a superficial layer in our, in our understanding of you, uh, uh, or we're at a deeper level, it's irrelevant in terms of what you can teach us and how you can transform us. <coughs> and I know your word has power to change us. And so we look forward to, to that today. And uh, guide me the truth in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today we're going to pick up from where we left off last week. Uh, remember last week, Jesus had, was praying for his disciples on the night before his crucifixion. And in last week's message, we looked at uh, Jesus' first petition to the Father. Uh, he, he prayed for their protection from the world. And this protection, as you remember, was not physical. It wasn't primary physical. It was uh, spiritual. It was protection from any deception or delusion that would lead them away from the saving truth of the gospel message that they were going to be taking out into the world. So today we're going to deal with the second half of Jesus' petition, uh, which is the, uh, the disciples' sanctification from the world. Sanctification. And that will be our focus today. So what does sanctification mean anyway? How do we define this? Well, sanctification means to be set apart or consecrated, uh, made holy uh, for service to God. It can apply in the Bible to a, an object, 
like if you were in the temple uh, in the Old Testament, you can consecrate an object for, for worship, but it can also be uh, set apart or consecrated or made holy as a person. And here, we, we, the context is sanctification of the disciples, uh, which are, of course, people. But when someone is sanctified, they're designated for a specific task. And they're, 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 they're to work as, as intended by the designer. Right? So you're to fulfill a specific task as intended by the designer. So in the case of the disciples then, Jesus was praying that they would be set apart for service to God as he intended for them. So the next question I think would be important to answer would be, well, what did he intend for them? What was their purpose and what was this going to look like for the disciples if they were to be sanctified? Well, first of all, it was going to mean a life that was not free from hatred from the world. It was a life not free of opposition. Look at verse 13 and 14 with me. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Here's a key observation you don't want to miss from this passage, or in this verse I should say. If you notice the reason, the reason for the world's hatred of the disciples. Notice it wasn't their food preferences. It wasn't the way they were dressed. It wasn't the choice of music they listened to. It was purely their connection to the Word of God. In this, in this context, specifically to the commandments and teachings of Jesus. And of course, Jesus knew this was going to be their reality, uh, but they were going to be hated because of the connection to him, because he was hated because of the words he spoke and the way he lived in relation to them. I mean, John in his opening chapter says in verse 10 and 11, uh, Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. And the reason they rejected Jesus Christ was it because of what he taught. It's what he taught and the way he lived in relation to the teaching. Let's just go through some of the things that Jesus uh, had to face with regards to the message he proclaimed. After preaching the synagogue in Nazareth, um, he told them, after preaching to them, that they were in danger of going to hell, that they weren't right with God. What did they do? They dragged him off to the edge of a cliff and tried to throw him off. Uh, on more than one occasion, he made the exclusive claim that he was God. And what did they do? The Pharisees attempted to stone him on more than one occasion. He, after proclaiming certain truths in the temple, uh, he was booted out and ostracized. And they told him, and he was, they said, or he lived then in danger to the point that he couldn't stay in certain places in Jerusalem for fear of safety. At times, he was publicly ridiculed and even called names. And we see this after he exercised a demon out of someone, and the response was that he was satanic. So Jesus' prayer for the disciples was timely, knowing that they were going to be hated by the world, because exactly that's exactly what he experienced. And because of his, their connection to him, because of the word of God, he knew they were going to face a life of persecution. Well, church, if it was true for Jesus, and it was true for the disciples, then hatred of the world is something we have to expect as well. You know, we're living in a culture where Christianity is being marginalized more and more. 
and we are we come off as judgmental and non-inclusive because of the claims that we make regarding Christianity. I mean, if you if you bring up parenting, for example, the way God tells us to parent, the way versus the world's way, is in complete opposition. If you think of areas in terms of marriage, uh, the permanence of marriage, uh, who you can marry and who you should marry, when you should get married, all these things, it's a complete opposition to the world. Areas of sexuality, morality. How about the exclusive claims that Christianity makes that Jesus is the only way to God and all other religions are false? I mean, as we live in this culture, we're going to experience more and more hatred as we uh, get farther and farther apart as Christianity get marginalized. And this is hard for us because it's very counter-cultural, counter-Canadian to, to not want to be sort of sensitive to other people's needs and feelings. There's a reason why we're known in, in the, across the world for people who say sorry to everything that we do. I've visited many countries and if you run into somebody or step in their way or do something, they don't say sorry to you. We say sorry for everything. We live in a culture very sensitive to the other people's feelings and needs. The problem is, Jesus is saying here, they're going to hate you because of my word. They're going to hate you. And this is normal, church. We have to, this is something that's going to become more and more normal, normal for us. I want to share with you two stories that happened to me within the ministry in the last two weeks. And I have the privilege of knowing these things because you know, I'm involved in your lives. And so I, but I want to share with you so you know what's going on in the church. Sarah, who's not here today has been growing in her faith and she's had a friend who's, who's always claims to be a Christian. She's been uh, recently cheating on her husband uh, quite prolifically and now separated and, and has been bragging about it basically to Sarah. And Sarah said to me, Andrew, like, what do I do? Like, what, how do I speak into her life? And so her and I spent an hour just going through scriptures about next time you get together with her, like, just proclaim God's way in this way. And she was awesome. And she came back a week later and said, yeah, I had that coffee. And I just opened up the Word of God to her, and I started speaking to her about how she couldn't claim to be a Christian and do these things. And I said, what happened? She goes, she immediately changed the subject I haven't heard from her since. This is a girl who's been involved in her lives. And I said, good for you. Who's going to be God's voice in her life? Because everyone around her is screaming, you're okay. You're not happy? Get out. You're, you know, you deserve to be cheating on him because of this. And Sarah, I'm saying, you know, Sarah, this is awesome because God's pleased that you did this on his behalf. Now, her hatred was not as far as Jesus is in terms of like maybe getting threatened, threatened her life, but she was hated nonetheless. The rejection from a friendship. Janice this week um, has got someone in her life right now going through a relational issue as well. Um, and Janice has been uh, praying for opportunities with some of you girls in here for opportunities to speak to this girl. And so she met her this week and they went back and forth and then Janice basically said, you know, this their problem's unsolvable without Christ. And um, they got into a pretty heated this conversation and the girl said, are you telling me that I'm going to hell? If I don't believe in your Jesus. And Janice had to say yes. Right? You can imagine with someone close to you how judgmental that would come across. But Janice came home and, of course, was extremely hurt and extremely sad about the, the severing of this relationship. I mean, they're still talking and stuff, but it's going to probably in the future potentially put a barrier between how close they can actually get. 
And Janice was saying, like, how come it was like this? Of where was God? Like, why didn't He give me better words to say and, 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 and things that, uh, that were more sensitive? Or like, I thought the Spirit was supposed to guide us into truth. And where was God in that matter? Like, shouldn't I have been more gentle in the way I approached it? And I said, Janice, honey, like, not only is God um, not um, disappointed in you for the way you handled it, like, He's excited by the what you said. Excited. Listen, listen to this truth in Scripture, Luke six twenty-two. Blessed are you when you hate when when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. See, when you as a Canadian you don't like to be marginalized. Listen, if you stand up for Christ in this culture and you get marginalized, you're not only rejected by God, not only are you sort of distant from God in terms of the way you're thinking, you're actually closer to Him. He's, he says you're blessed. You're blessed. He's, not only is He not distant from you, He's actually close to you, and He's thankful for the fact that you be God's voice in, in this world. So perhaps the question for us then is, where do we line up? Whose side are we on? Right? How often do we find ourselves being hated by the world? If it's often, or if it has happened on occasion, then take comfort in Jesus' words, blessed are you. But perhaps if you've never been hated by the world, it's a revealing statement about where you're at and your walk with the Lord right now. Maybe there isn't a walk, and maybe this is a real wake-up call to your spiritual temperature. And I would plead to you to commit your life to Jesus Christ in a full way, if this is the case. So we've learned here that their sanctification didn't, didn't mean a freedom from hatred from the world. What else didn't it mean? Well, it didn't mean a lit life that was to be lived in isolation from the world. Look at verse 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. You know, we are to bump shoulders with the world. We're not to be taken out of it. We're to, we're to be penetrated and to be saturated in it. And we are to just bump shoulders with it. We were never promised in salvation to be taken out of it. We are to rub shoulders with everyone and be mixed in with the world's values and, and, and so on and so forth. And here we see Jesus um, saying to the disciples in his prayer, or saying to the Father about the disciples in his prayer, listen, uh, I don't want these men to treat the new church as some kind of isolated holy club where no one can join in. you got to stay, stay away from everybody. Right? The world was the very place the disciples needed to be. And the same for us, church. The purpose for our salvation is that so we don't always get together for some little private holy huddle, right? right? We're not a little football team, one, two, three, and, you know, hooray, whatever. Uh, we're, we're here to, be, to get strengthened so that we can go out and be part of this world. And we're to, to be trained in the church so that we can go out and saturate the world as God's voice. In biblical terms, I mean, Jesus uses the word salt and light. We're to be salt and light in the world. And if we just stay to ourselves, that's never going to happen. But Jesus' main concern here was not that they'd be taken out of the world then, but he did ask that they'd be kept from Satan. He, they were to be kept from the evil one. Now, based on the context from last week's sermon, I suggest, again, being kept from the evil one, being kept from Satan, is not physical. Not that Jesus didn't at times protect them from certain uh, tactics of the devil in a physical way, like certain uh, beatings, for example. But I would suggest this is primarily spiritual, again, based on the context. 
Remember, Jesus' prayer last week for their protection was from any deception or delusion or potential departure from the truth of the gospel. So what he's asking here for, for them now is that they be protected from any attempts by the devil to deceive them and ultimately destroy their faith. So the Father was to intervene in their lives in a way that would protect them from any deception which would destroy their faith. And of course, based on the influence these men were going to have in the world, right? They're going to be the ones in charge of spreading the gospel initially. This prayer then made a lot of sense. And especially because they'd already lost one. Judas had already fallen to one Satan's tactics. He'd been deceived. I think it's important to understand, church, that this is the devil's tactics for us as well. Did you know that he hates you so much that his goal is to actually destroy your life? Satan hates you so much he wants to, he wants to kill you. He wants to kill you. Not physically, although he, it could be that. Primarily spiritually. He wants to destroy you and separate you from God. You know, one of the most fascinating verses for me in the Bible is found in John 8.44. And I want you to, to see that I'm not exaggerating by my words. Look at 8.44 with me. This is Jesus in a, in a dialogue with the Pharisees. Listen to him. He says this. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Now watch this. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. You notice how, what Jesus calls him there? As a murderer. Do you know what's amazing about that, 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 that definition of, of, of Satan? He's never, you don't see him killing anybody in the beginning. Did you see him ever destroying anybody's life physically? Did, did he ever take them out? Nope. How did he murder Adam and Eve? He, he was through deception. Deception. As soon as he introduced that to Eve and she bought the deception, he murdered her. She separated, he separated her from God. And God had to, through, through his own means, restore them to him. We know the context of, of uh, him being a murderer is in, in the way he deceives in his speech because of the next verse anyway. Or sorry, the second half of verse 44. Listen to this. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. So again, the context in the verse here with being a murderer is in terms of what he speaks. Because if he can speak lies and deception into people's lives, he can kill, kill them. He can basically take them away from God. And I was sitting, at, uh, I was sitting somewhere in public. I forget where it was. I was in Tim Hortons or somewhere. And I was looking around at all the people as I was studying this. And you know what amazed me? From the outside, if I lined up 100 people in that store that day, we all looked the same from the outside. We all looked the same. But you know what's crazy? The only the people that were not deceived and had not been, were not being killed or murdered by Satan in that whole place were the people who were Christians. And I was looking at all their lives and going, look at all the ways in which these people are probably deceived. You know, this, this person believes this, and Satan's got them. This person believes that, and he's got them. All the ways in which he can deceive people into thinking that they're right with God, and they're not. 
It's no wonder Jesus has to pray for the Father to, to keep him from the evil one, knowing what his ultimate goal is. So, as we've seen so far, the purpose for this disciple's sanctification then did not mean freedom from the world's hatred, nor did it mean isolation from the world. So, what did it mean? Well, it meant a continuation in the mission that Jesus had already started. They were to follow in Jesus' footsteps. Look at verse 18. He says, As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So the Father had sent Jesus into the world to save the world, to proclaim truth, and now it was the disciples' turn to lead that charge. That's what it meant for them to be fully sanctified, to be to be put into into uh, into charge of the, the task that God intended for them. But for this to happen, two conditions had to be met. There were two conditions that needed to be met for these men to fully reach their intended purpose. The first one was that Jesus would have to die on the cross. He would have to die on the cross. Look at verse 19. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. You know, the sanctification Jesus is speaking about here is the, his own death on the cross. He knew that he came to earth with a certain mission and purpose, and that it was God's intention, the Father's intention, that he be, he be crucified. His purpose was always to die for sin. Had Jesus bailed out of this mission, he in essence would have desanctified himself. And if he desanctified himself then, the disciples would have no need to be also set apart or sanctified to preach this message because there'd be nothing to preach. <laughs> so in order for them to be sanctified in truth and take that message out, the cross had to happen. Otherwise, they've got nothing to proclaim. So the sanctification that Jesus had to go through was in fact this cross. It was necessary for the disciples to also fulfill their intended purpose by God. But what I really want to focus on in our message today uh, is really verse 17, which is a second condition that needed to take place in these disciples' lives, and that was the, that their sanctification must take place in truth. It must take place in truth. Look at this. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. A couple of observations I want to make about this first. The first one is this, that Jesus' purpose behind the cross was not just to offer salvation and the forgiveness of sin to these men. His purpose was far greater. It was also transformation. So his purpose was not just salvation, but transformation. He didn't just die for the disciples so that their sins could be forgiven and then ditch them. He died so that he could continue in a relationship in order to shape their character. They were to be sanctified in the truth. They were to be set apart, made holy, consecrated for service by the truth. It's an ongoing process. It wasn't a one-time event. And he knew that the cross was necessary in order to continue to do this in the men's lives. He had to shape them, make them holy. And I find this fascinating, you know, because we, when we speak, think of salvation, the Bible often speaks of it as being adopted, right? You're adopted as a son and a daughter into the kingdom of God. I started thinking about all the families I knew and where adoption has occurred. So many of you don't know this, but Dan Jansen is, a, is an adopted child. Uh, we have Gigi in our midst, who's a, an adopted child. One of my best friends from high school named Peter, he was an adopted child. Do you know what's the similarity in every single family I know where adoptions occurred? The one pervasive uh, consistency 
In every case where adoption occurred, none of the families adopted the child and then ditched the child once they got to the home. Every family made every effort they could to pour their lives into that little kid and, and, to, and, and just invest in them to change the character. The Finleys are raising Gigi to be like a Finley. My friend Peter was being raised to be like a Smith. The Jansen family was raising Dan to be like a Jansen. And if all these families are following Christ, ultimately they're all following into, they're all being patterned after Jesus Christ in their lives. But you see how awesome that is? Every time adoption occurs in this world, at least in the families that I've given examples of, there was this huge care and concern for investment in the character and the development of that child. Every single family. And that's the same for Jesus Christ and salvation. It mattered to him what the disciples were going to be like. Because as I said last week, these men were going to be the first line of defense in Christ's army, bringing the gospel to the world. So it was going to be inconceivable for Jesus to send out disciples whose attitudes and behaviors contradicted the message they were proclaiming or the character of the holy God they were serving. Right? It's inconceivable he'd send men into the world who contradicted the message of Jesus and the character of Jesus. He would never do that. They had to be like him and be a reflection. And this imperative for us men and women, that we live godly lives as well. It's, imper it's imperative that we become more and more holy in our walk with the Lord. Because as Jesus represented the Father to the people in his day, we, as believers today, represent the Father in our day. You guys, if you look around, you may not recognize this, but did you know every single one of you has a tattoo on your forehead? Every single one of you has a tattoo on your forehead. You can't see it in each other, but the world sees it. Do you know what the tattoo reads? You belong to Jesus Christ, and I'm watching you to see how you live and what you say to see what he's like. The tattoo on your forehead says you belong to Jesus Christ. That's what the world sees in your forehead when you proclaim you're a Christian. They're looking to watch you and I to see what we say and how we live to get an understanding of what Christ is like. So the question I think we have to ask ourselves is, does our lives bring glory to God or the world? <laughs> you know, the second condition then in this, the disciple sanctification that we've been speaking about, this sancti being sanctified in truth, also has another process that we need to look at. Notice that, that the agent by which this was to occur was the truth of God's word. We are to be holy. We're, to, we're wearing this tattoo saying, I belong to Jesus, but how do we get there? It's through the truth of God's word. Not through Sunday school. It's not through worship music. And not even through prayer. According to Jesus here, the truth of the Word of God is what's going to make these men holy and separated for God in service. Now for these guys, uh, the truth was the entire Old Testament plus the teachings they had received from Jesus Christ over three years. But this is true for us as well, church. We need the Word of God to sanctify us because truth isn't found inside of ourselves. Our natural default in this world is not God's way. 
our natural default is that we're right and that uh, we know what works best in this, in this lifetime. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And Solomon in Proverbs 16.25 said, There's a way that seems right to a man, which in the end only leads to death. So we have this internal bent that we're always right, but God says, No, you can't be sanctified and set apart from me, apart from my external word to you. The only remedy for your heart and your deceit, the way you think, and your natural default is that you get my truth, my external truth sent to you. You know, church, the Bible is more than just a book, right? You know, you take, if you take the Quran and the teachings of uh, Muhammad, or you take like the Book of Mormon, you take the Bible, you put them all side by side on the shelf. So the average person looking, it's just another form of religion. And they're all, they're all just uh, either a lie or they're all just a way of people think that, oh, you're just trying to control me through this or whatever. Um, they think this is just a book with words on the page. Not according to Jesus Christ. This book has a power in it contained within the words of this page to change lives. It is the power to prepare us and make us ready for service to God. Sanctify them in your truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them. We can't be sent out and, uh, to the degree that we need to be and as useful for God to the degree that he can use us for if we are not sanctified in the word of God. So I don't know where you and I are at in our time in the scriptures uh, lately or as a habit, but we won't become mature in our faith or be as useful to God in evangelism or discipleship if we're not saturated in his word. Because when we get into conversations, we're going to have all these ideas of how to speak to people from our wisdom. But the problem is, is that no life change is going to occur unless we know the scriptures really well. I like what Joe Donjel said in his commentary. He says, the word of God has to become the arena in which you live. Those hockey parents who've experienced that know exactly what it means to live in an arena. <laughs> right? Just every time. Oh, here we go back to the rink, back to the rink. You know, you're saturated in this, this environment. The Word of God has to become the arena in, in which we live. And there's, if we're spiritually stagnant, this is probably why. If we haven't grown lately, this is probably why. If we've made huge progress in our faith lately, this will be probably why. Right? And there's many ways within our church we have, we've set it up so that we, can, we have no excuse to not to be growing. We have, uh, if you're not doing devotions in your own life, we have men's and women's groups and we can meet one-on-one -on -one and just regularly dive into the Word of God. I'll leave you with a quote um, from, from two men uh, that I think they're pretty fun. They're both from Okotoks, actually. Um, a guy named T Tony Barber said this. He says, do you know what the acronym for Bible is? And I'm like, no. He goes, basic instruction before leaving earth. <laughs> right? Basic instruction before leaving earth. Right? Because we need instruction. We don't have truth found in ourselves. My friend Dave Thorne also. Uh, Dave Thorne was part of my Bible study when I was first a Christian with Lauren Schultz. He was a master of one-liners, and uh, he, he probably gave me half the ones that I have. He said, uh, Andrew, he goes, show me a man whose Bible is falling apart, and I'll show you a man who isn't. <laughs> right? Now, again, I guess, you know, you get the idea, right? I mean, mine's falling apart, but that's because the binding's not holding well. <laughs> I need new glue. <laughs> but isn't that good, though? Show me a man or a woman who's not, who's, whose Bible's falling apart, and I'll show you a person who isn't. There's, there's truth in that. There's truth in that. 
And that's why when we all get together, we speak about the Word of God on consistent levels because we know we need it constantly to shape our lives. So what are some of the lessons we can take away from this? I suggest four, and it's, I've, I've said all these uh, throughout the sermon in different ways, but they're pretty, pretty clear. Lesson one, all believers who live out... Oh, sorry, I wrote it differently there. Okay. If one reflects a life committed to Jesus Christ in both word and deed, the world's response will be one of hatred. Right? If one reflects a life committed to the Jesus Christ in both word and deed, the world's response will be one of hatred. That's verse 14. I give them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world. Again, why? Because the world's truth and God's truth are in total contradiction to one another. And so when we share God's ways in different areas of life, from finances to marriage to, to, to gender issues to parenting, all these things, we're going to get met with opposition. And I think that's okay, because Jesus says in Luke 6, you are blessed. You are blessed. Not, 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 I'm not rejecting you. I'm not distant from you. I'm actually blessing you if you stand up for me and be my voice in this world. Again, tough in this world right now for us because we're getting squeezed out more and more. But you know what? That's normal. We've had it pretty easy in Canada. Everywhere else in the world, it's not easy. We're just starting to catch up with the world in terms of what it, like, what it means to stand up for God as a Christian. Second lesson. Christians are to live in the world and yet be distinct from it. Verse 15. I do not ask you to take them out, but to keep them from the evil one. So we're to live in the world, but we're not to adopt their values. We're to live distinct in the way we live. We're to be holy and set apart to God, even though we're to be in it. So we're not to isolate ourselves from the world. We're to saturate ourselves in the world. And in our saturation, again, we live distinct lives from their values and show that we're not in control, they're not in control of our behavior. I think this is really important, church, because a lot of people who, you know, will bank on the, 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 the sinner's prayer they said when they were six years old and say, I'm a Christian, I'm good with God. Listen, uh, according to this, there's, a, there's a, it's how you live in relation to his word that makes you good with God. Right? He cares about how we live. Just like those of you who have adopted people, children or no adopted families, they care about the child's character and who they are. If you've ever had conversations where you're struggling with someone, you know, with Christians who you can tell they're not right with God, but they're claiming because of this commit, their belief that they're right with God, you can use this verse to say, and use the example of adoption to help them, help them understand that they don't have a right perspective of Christianity. Yes, it's true, Jesus said, come as you are, but he didn't say stay as you are. Lesson three. The primary means by which God changes our character and equips us for service is the Word of God. primary means by which God changes our character and equips us for service is the Word of God, Scriptures. You know, when people, I've, I've heard people like joining churches and moving churches and stuff like that, and, you know, they'll say, I've heard them say things like, you know, I, I left this church to go to another church. I'll say, why? Well, I love the worship music there. Or they got a great youth ministry on Friday nights, or... I really like the fellowship in the foyer and all these things. Listen, like, I'm not denying that those things aren't sort of fun and important. But listen, if it's not a word-centered church, if it's not a church that's centered around the Word of God, it's not a right reason to leave a church and go somewhere else. We have to be in a place where the Word of God is being preached and taught. 
Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. I can't send you out for ministry the way I want to and make you as effective in ministry unless you know my word because that's what you're going to be proclaiming. You can't proclaim your version of truth. You've got to proclaim my truth, but you need to know my truth. Right? So again, like we have to make, you know, we want to be word-centered in our focus. And if we're not satisfied even in our own personal maturity, it's not going to change a lot until we fully commit ourselves and discipline ourselves in terms of time in the scriptures. Last lesson. The purpose behind Calvary was not only to save us, but to transform us. The purpose behind Calvary is not only for our salvation, but for our transformation. Right? He just he didn't just save us and ditch us. He saved us and then he invests in us through his words. He he wants to be in this genuine relationship. So if, if what any of us in here today are new to Christ, they're asking what now? What now? He he wants to just saturate your life with his scriptures and with who he is, and we learn from him as these words pour out into our lives through these pages. But again, I hope this helps us understand that. That so, if you're ever giving the gospel to someone, so I think as, as, as uh, Westerners, we often focus on the judicial side of the gospel. So like if you give the gospel, say, you know you're a sinner, and you need to be saved from sin, so Jesus came to die for your sin. Oh, okay, so let's pray right now and pray for that. Oh, pray for that. Okay, good, you're good with God now. Yeah, but you've missed the biggest part of the gospel in many ways. What now? What now? Well, he saved you not only for forgiveness, but he wants to be with you now for the rest of your life and help you walk through life. In other words, his love doesn't just start and end of the cross. His love continues to the day you die. That needs to be part of our gospel uh, um, speech to people when we help them understand why Jesus came. It's not just for salvation. He wants to transform us from inside out.